As Staff Sergeant Thalamus Lewis made his way through a village in eastern Afghanistan with fellow troop members on October 4, 2012, he heard bursts of gunfire. A single round from an enemy rifle struck him in the head, knocking him off the side of the road. Lewis was stunned. His ears were ringing and his head was aching. And yet somehow he was alive. Uh, but it wasn't simply dumb luck. It was his ACH, his advanced combat helmet. And back in the MASH unit on base, he learned how efficiently his bulletproof helmet saved his life from certain death. He said, once they told me that I took a round in the ACH, my first instinct was to want to see it. While inspecting the damage of his helmet, he responded in utter amazement and thankful amazement, really. Uh, it actually works, he said. Now, Lewis, who completed four combat deployments in his 20 years in the United States Army, said he used to resent all of the weight of and the bulkiness of his equipment. He said, being a soldier, we complain about a lot of stuff, especially all of the extra gear we have to carry, he said. I don't complain about it anymore. I am a walking testament to its value. Sergeant Lewis and the author of this text we're looking at today, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, which of course is God, penned through the inspired uh, leading of the Apostle Paul by his Holy Spirit to write this text, all understand and understood the importance, uh, the critical importance of a helmet. Ephesians 6, 17 says, take the helmet of salvation. And as the Apostle Paul traveled in his three missionary journeys in the Roman Empire, he crisscrossed many different countries. He went through many different jurisdictions. He covered many different languages. He, he encountered many different cities. And he saw Roman soldiers and their attire everywhere he went, including plenty of helmets. Well, what did the helmet do? It actually was the soldier's last line of defense from arrows, spears, swords, javelins, flying stones, debris, as well as just being rammed and struck by the shield of an opposing army. And the breastplate and the shield were the first line of defense. And all of this armor that they wore, by the way, was for defensive purposes, for standing one's ground, for slow or for slowly advancing. None of the armor that they wore was designed whatsoever for retreating. Well, soldiers didn't also drop their shield and say, I'm getting tired of carrying this heavy shield and besides, I got a helmet on, so I'm not worried. Just go ahead and whack away at my head. Uh, I'll be okay. No soldiers back then understood that it was the last line of defense between them and survival or death. So why is the helmet so important? Because it protected the brain, which if a person was struck there, could lead to instant death, could lead to the loss of bodily functions or the ability to walk, talk, to uh, uh, the issues of strength or loss of memory, to various types of paralysis, or just plain confusion, which could put a soldier in the war zone at additional risk, as well as his fellow troop members, because the soldier wouldn't be able to think clearly, quickly, or decisively in the field of battle. Very rarely is, uh, in battle, is head trauma ever a mild thing, which is why it has always been important to protect the head. One very, uh, one's very life, as well as one's future capacity uh, to live a healthy, reasonable, and productive lifestyle were, are all at stake uh, if someone gets hit in the head. 
This is why in our series today, we're talking about overcoming the world with wisdom. Uh, You see, God's wisdom equips us for God's purposes in this world, which means that we will be prepared to obey God's will for our lives. Now, remember, in our conversations thus far regarding overcoming the world, in the context, we've been talking about Satan and his cohorts and their schemes in this world and in the heavenly realms to disrupt the work of Christ. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Dr. Klein Snodgrass has this to say in reference to the devil and his schemes. He says, to put the question another way, who has power and to what are we vulnerable? The Bible instructs us to fear God and not the devil or demons. We should not fear being possessed or afflicted by the demonic, though we must be aware of the devil's schemes to delude us and to cause us to sin. The concern of Scripture, he says, is ethics, not demonization. And Paul's concern in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, is the same as in chapter 4, verse 27. And that's where he said, do not give the devil a foothold. Snidegrass goes on to say that by our inattention to life, we give place to the devil who will lead to sin. Now, the fundamental issue in discussing the demonic is the glory of God. To whom are legitimacy and power ascribed by the way we live? To the degree we give the demonic credence, to that degree it has control. As H. Schleier uh, put it, Christ has left the devil only what power unbelief allows him. Powers rule to the extent that people let them rule. They do not deserve attention. They deserve Snidegrass says, avoidance. They may be real, but they do not determine life. The New Testament focuses on the devil and demons for only two purposes. Number one is to say evil and death are defeated. And number two, to warn us to not be beguiled by evil. Everyone knows about evil and death. Christians are people who believe that Christ has conquered both. So losing our wits regarding the devil and his cadre of helpers is not the pathway to standing firm. Victims are never victors. Now, the helmet in Paul's day was known as the galea, and it was most often made of metal and and lots of times of bronze. And Roman soldiers had the best helmets in the world. Other nations had helmets that were made of leather or cloth wrapped around animal bones and, and animal hooves. Uh, The Roman helmet was made of metal with a chin strap and a visor over the forehead for additional strength to keep also the elements out of people's eyes and sometimes even the sun as well as other debris that might hit some people's eyes, uh, soldiers' eyes. And these helmets also had cheek pieces that came down and protected the ears and the sides of the face. They also had a ring on the top that was used for hanging the helmet up when they were resting, or also attaching a plume to, uh, which high-ranking officers had, uh, so they could be recognizable among the troops. 
Now, you may be interested to know that soldiers, when eating meals or resting for a few minutes from the battle lines, would take their helmets off and hang them up. The helmet was not worn at all times, like other pieces of armor tended to be. For the most part, it was only worn when the soldier was on duty, when they were in training, when they were standing guard, when they were traveling to and from the battlefield, or when they were on the battlefield itself. And it is believed by many historians that there were many reasons for the collapse of the Roman Empire. And two weeks ago, I happened to mention that a few of those reasons were the relaxing of discipline and the lessening of PT, physical training, among the legions, and so that their soldiers were unable to endure the fatigue of service. And as a result, soldiers complained about the weight of their armor and finally received permission to lay some of it aside. In particular, they started doing that more often with their helmets. And guess what happened? Their casualties in the military skyrocketed because they wanted to take their helmets off more than what was regularly uh, done. Now, before we go any further in our discussion regarding the helmet of salvation, we need to understand how this is all tied historically to the people of God. So I direct your attention back to the book of Exodus and chapter 14, when Moses is leading the Israelites out of, the, uh, out of uh, uh, 400 years of slavery, bondage in Egypt, and God used 10 plagues, 10 signs, to get Pharaoh to finally let God's people go. And now these Israelites' backs are up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's war machine is bearing down on them because Pharaoh once again has hardened his heart. Even though he said, you know, take these people, you know, let them go, go. Uh, now these people are backed up to the Red Sea, and they're absolutely terrified. And what does Moses say in verse 13 of Exodus 14? He answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. Uh, today, the Egyptians you see, you will never see again. Now, I want you to notice there, it talks about standing firm, and it talks about deliverance. That's the word Yeshua, which is also the name for the Messiah, is also uh, the name used for salvation. So keep that in mind. Now, another important passage is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verses 5 through 17. And there we have Jehoshaphat, who's king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and they're facing the intimidating Moabites and Ammonites. And things look really bleak for them, so bleak that Jehoshaphat calls upon Judah to spend a day in prayer and fasting, not unlike what's happening today around America in our nation because a number of evangelical leaders have asked people today to fast and pray on October 25th, 2020, for our nation and for our upcoming election. Well, here's what happens in this text, beginning in verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood up to the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built it into a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand 
in your presence before the temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress that you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there uh, before the Lord. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeiel, and the son of Mattaniah, a Levite and a descendant of Asaph. And he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do you hear the same language there? Stand firm and see the Yeshua. See the salvation that God will bring to you. And another important passage is found in Isaiah chapter 59. And this particular passage has to uh, uh, address the problems of sin in the world. Not only the ancient world and ancient Israel, but frankly, it's very prophetic uh, for our own modern world as well. And listen to Isaiah 59, verses 12 through 16 in that context. For offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Does that sound prophetic? Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Look at verse 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. God is telling us, is the one who goes to war with sin, and God puts on the helmet of salvation, sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as the helmet of victory. Because the, the victory here, the deliverance of Yeshua, it comes through the mighty warrior. It comes through God. Now, one other text I want to bring your attention to today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. And it says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. 
Now, please understand that there are three aspects here of deliverance or of salvation that the Bible speaks of. First of all, you have justification. Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. If we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are justified. It's just as if we'd never sinned, okay? That's what God has done for us. There's also a process that's part of working out our salvation or living our our Christian life in this world known as sanctification, in which God works with Christians as Christians desire to grow closer and closer to God. God gives us victory in our daily lives over sin. That's the process known as sanctification. Then there's a future aspect of our salvation that's known as glorification, where we're set free from this broken and fallen world and spend eternity with God in glory. So our salvation has a past component to it uh, that we're justified just as if we'd never sinned. There's a present component to it where God is leading us to sin less and less and less as we yield to him. And there's a future ramification of glorification with God. And this is why Christians who are only viewing salvation as being some kind of fire insurance, you know, that they can get to heaven because they've accepted Christ and so they're justified. They're viewing it just as heavenly, you know, just as a fire insurance policy that they live such uh, weak Christian lives. And there's also, because they're not fully utilizing their helmet of salvation with its present victories over sin. Others are living equally fruitless lives as well because they're all caught up in the circumstances of this life. It's hardships, it's disappointments. They're living in fear. You know, oh, it's so terrible what's going on in the world. In our culture, what's happening? Oh, what's going on politically? And they're living their lives in fear instead of the hope of their salvation and the future glorification that awaits the children of God. So with all this being understand, uh, understood, we need to understand here when Paul is writing to the, EV, you know, the, the Christians at Ephesus to put on the helmet of salvation, he's not saying that you need to get saved because he's writing to Christians. He's not saying that you need to come to Christ because they've already come to Christ. That's not what he's saying when he's saying take the helmet of salvation. He is saying that you need to live out the uh, great salvation that you have. That's what you're supposed to be doing. In other words, protect your minds from the ploys of the evil one. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3. And Paul's speaking to the Corinthians here. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Adam and Eve got led astray in the garden because Satan went after their minds. And what was the fear for the Corinthians? Same thing, that somehow their minds would be led astray. And one of the ways that Satan continually attacks us is with our minds, planting inappropriate images, inappropriate thoughts, inappropriate doubts and questions and lies. And many times those notions and those lies and ideas are kind of put on a loop that just keep playing themselves over and over and over again in our minds. And if we hear a lie long enough, pretty soon it starts to sound like the truth. Well, God's answer to Satan's wiles and, and Satan's taxic, tactics is always Jesus. 
In fact, it's more of Jesus. Listen to what Romans chapter 14, or 13, excuse me, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 have to say. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That's talking about the future glorification there. The, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not living, not in carousing and drunkenness or in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus. That's put on the Lord Jesus. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What you do in this mixed up and broken world is put on Jesus and more and more and more of Jesus. And by the way, there are numerous other places in the Bible that calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Now, piecing this all together, what Paul is saying here, the Old Testament, standing firm, and you have the deliverance of God. You have the helmet of victory that was put on, uh, putting on the helmet of salvation. You had the armor bearer that would be handing the soldier every piece of armor so they could get all dressed up for battle, be ready to go. And God is the one who's made all these pieces of armor for us. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet that can be shod with the gospel, uh, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, all available so we can be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, so that we can stand firm in the faith. And God wants us to fully embrace Jesus, who is our wisdom, so that we can be clear-headed, we can be wise, we can be obedient and effective soldiers of Christ. And when the Bible says Jesus is the wisdom of God, that is saying a lot. And when you think about the four Gospels, can you ever recall a time where Jesus was confused about anything? Was he ever bewildered or undone by what happened around him? Was he ever puzzled by the words or the actions of others? Was he ever perplexed by what God allowed to come into his life? I think you know the answer to these questions. It's a resounding no. Even in times of extreme stress, like in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and knew what was on the horizon, he was sweating droplets of blood. Or in his various trials, when he was beaten many times, when he was scourged, when he was crucified, Jesus was not confused. In his humanity, he was certainly in extreme pain and sorrow at numerous points, but he was never dumbfounded. He understood God's will for his life because he had the wisdom of God. And when we put on this helmet, when we take the helmet of salvation, uh, we are resting in the assurance of our salvation, and we're protecting our minds from the deceptions of Satan with the wisdom of God. See, God's wisdom equips us for God's purposes in this world, which means that no matter what we encounter in life, we are prepared to obey God's will. So I want to get real practical in these last few moments that we have together about how devoted followers of Christ are like, what they're like when they put on this helmet of salvation. First thing I want you to understand is they have a humble spirit. And that was our scripture reading today from the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 9, that Kara read for us, verses 23 and 24. Uh, notice the humble spirit here. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I'm the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, 
declares the Lord. See, a person who's wise, according to God's definition of wisdom, knows all too well their own weaknesses. They know their shortcomings. They know where they're weak. Such people never assume that they know it all in life. In fact, they are very cognizant of how little they actually know because they have this humble spirit. Second thing I want you to recognize is that people who put on this helmet of salvation, who are pursuing this wisdom of God in their life, protecting their minds from what the evil one wants to do, is they understand that wisdom is something that's acquired over time. You know, often people confuse wisdom and knowledge, but there is a difference. Knowledge involves the accumulation of facts and information. This is how professors at colleges can be experts in certain fields because they've studied them extensively. But you know, some of them have never actually worked in those fields. Really, they've never worked in those fields, but they can be experts. I've known of professors of agriculture who have never farmed a day in their lives. Or I've known of professors of business who've never run a business in their life, but they're teaching young people how to, you know, run a business or how to have a business. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to achieve the best outcome. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is fruit and not a vegetable. Wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. You get what I'm saying? You can have people who are experts and know a lot, but, but really don't necessarily have wisdom. Wisdom is not automatic, and it's not instantaneous. It takes time to learn. It takes time to grow, time to understand, time to improve, time to study. And wisdom comes from a willingness to learn and grow over the course of a lifetime. The saying goes, the more you humble yourself and keep a hungry heart, the more wisdom you will acquire. You know, in his book, A Thirst for God, Sherwood Wirt explains that physical and spiritual hunger are fundamentally different. When we're physically hungry, we eat and are satisfied, and the hunger disappears. But when we are spiritually hungry, we eat and find ourselves even hungrier. We discover that our appetite for God and for his word increases. This is why consistent devotions, you know, regular study of God's word for faithful participation in worship services and Bible studies is a must in our lives. But notice this, word says, when we are physically hungry and we miss a meal, we soon feel like we're starving and we can't wait to eat. In the spiritual realm, though, he says, it's just the opposite. When we miss our spiritual meals, we begin to what? We begin to lose our appetite. You know, once you miss devotions one day, then it's easy to miss the next day and the next day. Once you don't do some of your extra readings, or do, it's easier to quit those things. Once you, you know, uh, miss worship service, well, it's easier to miss the next time. Our appetite doesn't increase. We actually start to lose our appetite in those senses. Devout followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are not looking to take their helmets off. They want them on at all times in order to stand firm against the devil and all of his schemes. They want at all times to protect their minds and their intelligence and their ability to think and reason. And such people are equipped to live out God's purpose in this world, and they're, pre- they're prepared to obey God's will because they have humble spirits and they have hungry hearts. And I hope that this describes each one of you today. Take the helmet of salvation. Let's pray together.
God, our Father, today um, we've covered a lot of ground in the Bible, and uh, there's an overarching theme that's really directly tied to the helmet of salvation. God, that you are the one who delivers your people. You are the one who saves your people. You're the one who invites your people to humble themselves before you and to seek your face. And God, you're the one who uh, can, can bring victory because you're the victor who wears the helmet of salvation, the victor's helmet. And, and we can experience that great deliverance through you. And God, I pray too for today and this present culture we're living in and these challenging times we find ourselves in, that we won't be people of fear, that we won't be people that are overwhelmed and, and just so fearful that, that life makes no sense whatsoever, but recognize, God, that you're in control of all things and just pl- cast all of our cares upon you because you, God, are the one who cares for us and you will see us through. So I pray, God, that we can live out this great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, that each one of us will take the helmet of salvation and live out the great salvation you provided for us. We pray this in Jesus.